Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. On the front of your bulletins this morning, uh, as I like to do from time to time, there, there's a sermon illustration in the stained glass on the front of your bulletins. And um, this particular work of art can be found uh, on the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And the window has a really beautiful and tragic story behind it that highlights sort of the best of, of humanity and the worst of humanity, the highest or the lowest that sin can take us and the highest that God's grace can inspire. Because the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama is a famous church. You may know it from the history books, or some of you, um, it's recent enough in memory, you might remind, be remembering the event that took place there from your childhood. Um, because this was a black Baptist church in Birmingham during the middle of the civil rights movement. And it's where many of the civil rights leaders came to gather in the 1960s, the early 60s, to, to plan and to pray for the work ahead. And so on Sunday morning uh, in 1963, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, a couple of members of the KKK, set off a bomb on a Sunday morning uh, next to this church. And it exploded and destroyed one of the walls, which then uh, crumbled and crashed in and killed four young preteens and injured dozens of others. It's a tragic thing that happened. And the incident was so tragic it made international headlines. Um, People all over the world heard about this bomb. And it was a common thing enough. They used to, uh, apparently at the time, they called uh, Birmingham Bombingham because bombs had been going off regularly at this time, small bombs that hadn't done a whole lot of damage, but they destroyed property. And yet, this incident was the first time that it ever happened at a church that a place of worship had been bombed. And so this stained glass uh, um, artist in Wales, uh, someone in Wales, right, of all places, Wales and the UK, they were so shocked and saddened by this event that they wanted to to reach out and do a reconciling work. And so he put out an advertisement in a newspaper and said, hey, I'm going to crowdfund, as we say today, I'm going to crowdfund a new piece of stained glass artwork for this church that was bombed. And he said, I'm going to make it. I have the design ready. I just need funding. Um, And so I just want as many people as they can um, to donate a little bit of money. I want it to be a gift from the whole people, not just me. And so um, he said, nobody contribute more than like $1.50. And he ended up raising from the people of Wales about $26,000. And that's all in today's money, uh, those numbers. And the result is the stained glass you see on the front of your bulletin. It features um, a crucifixion scene in which Jesus is depicted as a black American. And you can look at his hands, and one hand is sort of holding back the sins of the world, right? We, we see it pointing away, but the other hand is pointing forward as if it's welcoming, welcoming people into its loving embrace. And the words at the bottom, you can read it in the, in the stained glass there. It says, um, you do it to me. 
a reference to the sheep and the goats parable um, that Jesus is famous for, but also um, a sort of um, holy warning uh, that when people do violence against the church, of course, when the bomb goes off at the church, it's not the church they are bombing, it is Christ himself. And so this beautiful piece of, of stained glass art, I think, is a testimony to um, the work of reconciliation that was uh, an attempt there, right? Because it was white supremacists who bombed the church. And in this gift of art is sort of a beautiful attempt by white Christians in Wales to be reconciled uh, to their friends, their fellow Christians over across the pond. And so in a war torn apart by skin color, the Welsh community, they were taking the step forward and hoping to say, we want to bridge the gap. This was wrong. Some of our people did this, and we want to make it right. Um, and so they call it the Welsh window, and you can go see it to this day. And um, it's a testament to what can happen, the beautiful things that can come forward when Christians work to be reconciled together. We've been recapping the last year and a half of our life during this pandemic time together. And we call this series The Divine Debrief, right? A debrief of all the themes and events that happened over the past season. And we've been trying to understand, again, what the heck happened? What does the Bible have to say? Is there anything we can take away from Scripture to learn about ourselves and our community and the world that we can take with us uh, in the future? And last week, we looked at humility, um, how the pandemic offered us a, a really sort of global opportunity uh, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but also it offered us an opportunity to avoid the trap of self-loathing. This week, I want to speak about how we can begin to mend some of the broken pieces of our pandemic life by exploring this biblical theme, this biblical value of reconciliation. Reconciliation is what I want to talk about today. And I don't know if I have to tell you here today, you guys are pretty biblically literate, that reconciliation is a core theme of the Bible. But I'll lay it out for you right now. Um, it's in our reading from 2 Corinthians today, the whole mission of God is his work to reconcile the world to himself. And if you read the Bible from front to back, Genesis to Revelation, you read a story about how God created the world. The world went into rebellion against God and his good graces, and how God is actively working not to wipe the slate clean and start over. God decides, no, I'm not going to do that. But instead, he says, I'm going to save it. I like this world enough that instead of just sort of wiping the slate clean, I'm going to work with what I have and try to bring back into the fold the people who are in rebellion. And so the, the Bible has this envision of the world and the bad things that happen as an insurgency against his divine will. Um, that he wants things to happen in the world, and the world is sort of giving him a spiritual middle finger over it. And uh, what he's doing is saying, I'm going to ignore the middle finger, and I'm actually going to work to love and restore the relationship. I'm going to bring about reconciliation between us. And that's the story of the Bible. Um, reconciliation is one of the purposes behind the law of Moses. It's one of the, the themes there especially in the animal sacrifice system. We're talking about this at our 9 a.m. Bible study time, right? There, there are a number of occasions where God has Israel sacrifice an animal um, to him as a part of their worship. And we tend to think of animals purely on, you know, sort of pet themes, right? Um, that, that animals are, 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 we have emotional bonds with animals, not so in the ancient world. 
Um, animals were more about livelihood. There was no emotional connection there. So in the same way they, that we may, you know, we go to our friend's house and we break a lamp, we knock it over and it, it shatters on the floor. And we say, oh, my dear, I'm so sorry. I, let, me, let me pay some money from my wallet here to make amends and so that you can buy a new lamp. Or in the same way that we're in our rental houses and we damage the drywall and we pay to have the drywall of somebody else's house fixed. Or maybe we've gotten into an argument with our spouse and so we give of ourselves to buy flowers or chocolate or baseball tickets or something. Whatever it is in your own, you know, a relational dynamic, right? Um, but we give uh, of our livelihood to make an apology gift. And so God deals into this, he, this idea of giving of yourself to mend a broken relationship. That's a theme that's all over the New Testament, especially in the sacrificial system. But reconciliation is also not just in the law, it's in the prophets, too. I think of someone like Hosea, the prophet Hosea, right? Hosea, the story of Hosea is that his wife runs away, um, that his marriage falls apart, his wife runs away, and she finds herself in debtor's slavery um, sometime down the road. So what Isaiah does is he says, um, I'm going to pay the price to buy her out of slavery so that I can reconcile with my wife and be with her and we can have a marriage again. And he says, that's what God is like. That He says, God is like my marriage. God buys people out of slavery and gives of himself of his own. God gives of his own to reconcile with people who are not in relationship with him. So we have it in the law. We have it in the prophets. It's in our psalm today. We have this vision of forgiveness and reconciliation in our psalm, right? The psalmist in trouble asking for God's help and forgiveness. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And that's really interesting, right? Because um, I don't know that I always link, as the psalmist does, the forgiveness of God with the fear of God. And yet the psalmist does. He says that there's something about the forgiving, loving, always looking to reconcile nature of God. There's something about that that induces fear. And so if we're an insurgency against God, if that's the biblical description, it makes that insurgency that much more, uh, or I guess that much less powerful. Um, because if God is always going to forgive me, it takes some of the self-righteous wind out of my insurrection wings. Uh, that if God is always forgiving, you know, it, it, there's some fear in that because it takes away some of my sort of anger and frustration against God and my rebellion. And for Jesus, of course, as we read in our readings today from the Gospel um, <clears throat> of Matthew, reconciliation was a chief ethical command. Those of you who know the Bible well, right, know how often Jesus championed quick, uh, repetitive, full uh, conflict resolution with those in, in your orbit. What does he say today? Peter says, how many times should I give my brother? You know, seven times? And I imagine Peter thinking he's very holy by saying, yeah, seven, that, that's a lot of times, right? Should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus says, no, you got to forgive him 77 times, which is sort of biblical talk, number talk in the Bible for forgiving him infinity times. And so there's a sense where, where Jesus says, no, you always forgive. You always go reconcile with people. And every week when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And again, you don't have to be a brilliant Bible scholar to see in our reading today that parable of the servant, how um, forgiveness God envisions a sort of trickle-down forgiveness model, where we as a forgiven people then turn around and forgive others. 
And if we don't recognize the forgiving work of God in that way, we don't know God at all. So we have it all together, right? Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, Epistles, Law, Prophets. The concept of reconciliation is everywhere in the Bible. God goes the extra mile and sacrifices of himself to be reconciled and save the world. That is the core of Jesus' death and resurrection. That when Jesus dies and rises again, it is God giving that which is of most value for himself to be reconciled with the world. And therefore, to, to use Paul's language in our reading today, we should embrace the ministry of reconciliation ourselves, persuading others, as Paul says, to repent of their own insurrection and join with the creator God who loves us. That's part of what Christians are assigned to do. There's a part of our service each week that gets to the heart of this matter. This is so important to our denominational tradition, we build it into our Sunday service together. And that time is called the passing of the peace. And uh, we do the passing of the peace, right? We get up, we, we shake each other, we look each other in the eye, and we say, the peace of God be with you, or God's peace, or something like that. Um, and lots of churches do this from week to week. It's not just our thing, right? It's something that lots and lots of churches do. And so some churches, they do it, they call it, you know, a greeting time. And I've been at big Baptist megachurches where you just sort of shake hands with everybody around you while the piano plays a little ditty and that sort of thing. You, you can see it there. You can see it in all sorts of different um, contexts. There is this part of the service that's set aside for us to greet our neighbor or wish them God's peace. And it's not popular. <laughs> you guys love it here, right? But it's not popular. Um, I was listening uh, recently to a church leadership uh, program, which um, this this church leader was talking about the great ritual. And he did this big survey of all these churches and he comes from a Baptist background. So, you know, that, that is what it is. But he said, look, here's the thing. This thing alienates newcomers because they're just there to check out the church. They're, they're not interested in meeting new people. This thing alienates the introverts. And some of you were like, amen, Brian, right? Uh, it alienates the introverts who, who are there and they got to process quietly. And so this extroverted handshake thing, not the deal. He said more than half of the survey people that we responded had a negative response to this greeting your neighbor, passing the peace part of our time in church. And, and he said, so I tell you, if you want your ministry to be better, if you want to sort of remove friction from your ministry, whatever that means, uh, get rid of it. Get rid of this passing of the peace. Don't do it anymore. It's hampering your ministry. People don't like it. And uh, I, I can see the point, right, um, that, that there is something to this part of our service, which, you know, okay, maybe it's not the most important thing that we do. Um, but what the reality is, is, is we're not just doing this passing of the peace to, to greet our neighbors. It's not about being friendly. It's not being well, oh, about being welcoming. Um, it's not half time in the service where we get to stand and stretch our legs and sort of talk for a minute and then back to the Pastor Brian show. That's not where the passing of the peace is. Um, it's not welcome time. It's this moment that we build into our service where you have the opportunity, me too, we all have an opportunity to be reconciled with our neighbors before we take communion. That this thing where we come together with God, you know, there's a very clear teaching from Jesus where he says, look, if you're going to come and sacrifice, right, animal sacrifice system, if you're going to come sacrifice an animal to me, right, don't, don't try to be reconciled with me when you've got this outstanding big fight with your neighbor. Go, like, just leave your animal there, go find this person, reconcile with them, and then come back. And so what we do is we create space every Sunday for you to go shake hands with somebody in the church that you're having a fight with so that you can come forward and take from the bread and wine in a way that your conscience is clear. Um, 
A peer of mine, this is true, people do this, by the way, all right? A peer of mine uh, did this in seminary. I was very, I, I, I admired him deeply. I still do this day for this because um, he was a history major in undergrad, so he was a very history-oriented guy, like he knows his history, smart young man. He was a peer of mine in seminary, and he got a bad grade on one of his papers from the church history professor at the seminary, right? Like this guy who, who knew his history, then he wrote a paper, a history paper, and the history teacher gave him a bad grade on it. And he sat there and, and he was stewing about it. He's like, look, I've been over this paper. My history's not wrong. I, I don't know why I got this bad grade. I don't think I deserve this bad grade. And for weeks, he did not take communion. Um, he sat there and said, I'm stewing, I'm mad, I'm angry at my professor. Until I reconcile with him, I don't think I should be taking communion right now. And so what he did was one Sunday, he skipped his own church, his home church. He didn't go to his home church service. He knew where that professor went to church, went to church with that professor. And during the passing of the peace, everyone's shaking hands and there's hubbub and whatever. And he said, hey, professor, and he pulled him aside for just 30 seconds and said, I just got to confess to you. I got that bad grade and I've been stewing about it and I'm really mad about it. Um, I, I don't know what it was, but I'm just here to say, I'm sorry for being mad and being angry at you. Maybe we can talk about it later. That's unfair of me to you. And they shook hands, they wished each other God's peace, and then they took communion together. Right? That's what we're talking about when we talk about the, the value of biblical reconciliation. We're squashing our resentments. We're keeping anger out of the church. We're dealing with these things quickly so that we can do the mission of God and not be distracted by the things that drive us nuts. Right? Um, and so when we get together and we're passing the peace and we're shaking hands and there's a little bit of hubbub and there's, you know, you know peace and care, peace and care, and everybody's just talking, right? What you may not know is that there are two people somewhere around you, you know, maybe you do because we're a small church, but in bigger churches, it's a small church, right? They're getting together and they're shaking hands and they're wishing each other's God's peace. And there's this brief moment of reconciliation that's happening. And that's kingdom work, friends. That's beautiful work that's happening amongst members of the church. And so they sit there, they shake hands, they wish each other's God peace, and you don't know it, but a little bit of the kingdom of God is blossomed while we're all kind of doing halftime and wishing each other well and asking how the kids are. And so this reconciliation thing is so ingrained in the spirit of God. It's so ingrained in the Christian gospel that we make space for it to happen in our service. So that's um, how important this is to us. Now, I want to say this, right, just because we're, we're debriefing the past COVID year, year and a half. Um, we, I think, part of what COVID has done for us is it's given us whole new reasons to break fellowship with our fellow Christians, hasn't it? It's given us whole new reasons because the stakes of this past COVID year have felt so high, right? The, the, the things which were not a big deal before the pandemic, maybe you could get along with someone who didn't share your political views, or maybe you didn't have the same views on the nature of science, you could get along with them before the pandemic. But all of a sudden, right, your views on those things became threats. And so somebody is sitting there saying, you know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this thing and I'm trying to make it through and I could put up with you before, but now the way you believe differently and now my life is in danger or the life of someone I love is in danger. So I can't be with you anymore. And the flip side of that, of course, is, hey, you know what? We could get along before this pandemic, but your views on government and your views on the nature of politics, right? They put my freedoms in danger. Like my, the, the whole phil, the sort of philosophical framework, which gives us freedom and love and security in America, like, like that's in danger because of what you believe. So I can't be with you. Right? The, the, the stakes have gotten so high in the COVID pandemic. Um, I, I, we've all had a tough time. I heard a story this week from someone that just broke my heart because um, she was a Christian who married another Christian and the, the husband was an epidemiologist, right? 
He's a scientist. He studied infectious diseases. Like he, he, he knows a thing or two. And, and they're in church together and they got church and they're trying to go to church. And the husband says, Hey, listen, this is my career. Like, can I help you all make decisions? Like I'm gifted in this area. Like, let me tell you about what I know from my decades of work, you know, in this area. And the church leadership board said, no, thank you. We don't, we don't really care. Uh, we, we, okay. Yeah, sure. That's fine. But you know, we're just going to kind of sideline you and not do anything you tell us to do. And then, and so their, their church is kind of falling apart and this couple is reconciled their church. But then the, the wife in this marriage, her mother, um, uh, uh, sort of went off the deep end and had sort of religious experiences that were not really religious experiences. They were psychotic breakdowns. And she was saying things like, God has given me special knowledge and I can't tell you about it, but you have to trust me um, that um, the vaccines are going to kill you and everything's terrible and everything's going to fall apart. And, and she said, I have special knowledge from God that your husband um, is part of the problem and you need to not listen to your husband. So this poor husband and wife, their church is, is leaving them behind. And now this mother's having a psychotic breakdown and she's actively intervening to meddle in their marriage. And all of a sudden they're like, we don't feel like we can give our kids to their grandparents. Any-. The whole thing just falls apart. And I don't know that any of us have had it that bad, but we've had it all in, in, in these little ways where the relational dangers, the relational fallout of COVID, it, it's, it's hit all of us in some way, shape, or form. Um, when I was, I mentioned this at an earlier sermon, but I was reflecting on the pandemic myself, and I, I jokingly said that I had about 27 different coping mechanisms that I tried uh, to navigate the pandemic. Do you remember saying that joke? It's not a joke. It's at least 27. I might have come up with a couple more. And um, it was everything from like uh, buying new kitchen pots and pans, because I thought that would mean I could cook better from home. Um, and uh, things like I bought a duvet. Um, I didn't have a duvet, now I do. And I gotta be honest, it's great. Does it help with like the existential funk that, you know, the pandemic caused? But, you know, it's a duvet, so it's kind of nice. Um, and then I watched too much Netflix and then I tried and failed to plan a victory garden. I did get a gym membership and that was cool. You know, it helped. But and then I bought some more kitchen knives. Right. So there are all these little things where I'm like, well, maybe I could spend money or buy a new thing. And it's going to help me navigate the pandemic better. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, anything that I bought did not help me make it through the pandemic better. So um, there you go. Word of the wise. Uh, but I did realize there are two things that I did that made the pandemic um, better. There are two things that I did. The gym membership was one of them. I'll be honest with you. That was, that was a good, you know, yeah, prophetic word, you know, gym memberships. They are what they are. Um, endorphins are real, y'all. And um, so that helped. But, but the thing that helped the most was just being with people, which is the thing that you couldn't do during the pandemic, but that's the one thing that helped during the pandemic. And so anything I could do to jump through a hoop to be with people, right? Um, wear a mask, sit six feet apart outside when it's cold, you know, wear a mask, whatever. Like, like anything I could do to be with people actually made the pandemic more navigable. And so that's the trouble, right? The one thing that can help us make the pandemic more navigable, being with people that we love. Um, the problem is you've got, um, on the one hand, the, 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 the science saying that being with people is the one thing you shouldn't do. And then you have the politics saying, don't be with people who disagree with you because they are a threat to you. And I, I tell you all this just to say, you know, this whole season has been about pulling people apart, dividing people, getting us to view our friends as enemies, getting us to view people in our churches with disdain. And so um, today I want to tell you that, that the biblical answer to this um, is to reevaluate our understanding of the love of God and reconciliation. So three things, and we're conclude. Three things about the love of God and reconciliation, we're going to conclude. First, notice the funky grammar of our reading today. 
um, from Paul's letter to 2 Corinthians. Notice that God reconciled the world to himself. Right, that's funky language, right? When we talk about reconciliations, you know, let's say there was a strained marriage and they got back together, right? We say, okay, you know, um, uh, Donna and uh, Leroy, um, they reconciled, right? That, that There's this image of the two of them get together, they work it out, and then they're reconciled. And so there's this partnership language with reconciliation in our understanding of it, right? But that's not what happens in the, the Greek. It's not what happens in Paul's reading. Paul uses this very weird language. Um, Paul reconcile. Paul says that God reconciled the world to Himself. It's this like single individual person doing the reconciliation work without the consent or without the partnership of somebody else. It's really fascinating. I think the world just kind of sits there, and God does all the work. And the way I, I want us to think about that is, is at the very least, we can say this: that God makes the first move for reconciliation. Uh, God makes the first move. And, and that's a hard bit of, 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 of tap dancing to manage, I think, right? Because when we are in an argument with someone, making the first move towards reconciliation can feel like a defeat. Doesn't it, right? When, you, when you're fighting and maybe you're fighting with a spouse or fighting with, you know, um, a, a kid, you're fighting with an adult child and you're having an argument, it feels like weakness to be the first person to say, you know what? I, I don't like the, the tone here. I don't like the arguing with you. Let's work towards making this right. Let, let, let's talk through this. Let's solve this. That feels like weakness. It feels like powerlessness. But in our reading today, we can take away from the fact that God makes the first move. And so if we are going to be like God, if you really want reconciliation to be godly, um, consider making the first move. Consider being the person to say, hey, um, there's tension here. There's argument here. We're not getting along. I don't like it. Let's talk about it. And so reconciliation from a godly perspective, the, you know, God has already started reconciling with us. The ball is in our court. So let us be the kind of people who move forward to try to reconcile with others and let the ball be in their court. So I think that's one thing to take away, that God goes first in the process of reconciliation. As we begin to reconcile and pick up the pieces of our post-pandemic life, um, I would encourage all of us to consider being the first to go in our world. Second thing to pull from our text from Paul's letter, notice a word of vocation here. Paul says that we are ambassadors, uh, right? An, an ambassador is a tricky job. I would never want to be an ambassador. Um, ambassadors are tough, right? Because um, an ambassador represents in total the nations and ideals that they are called to represent. An ambassador, right? They have no opinions of their own in a vocational sense. Their duty is to take marching orders of the policies and the desires of their national uh, overseer and to do that work. Ambassadors who try to do something different than what the, their, their chief overlords are telling them, they're not ambassadors. They're just meddling at that point, right? When we think of ambassadors in the political sense, we think of people whose sole job is to be a mouthpiece, a middleman, an intermediary between two different groups. And that's not easy to do, right? Because you're sitting there and you're sort of thinking, well, if I was in charge, I wouldn't do it this way. I would do it this other way. And my bosses clearly don't see the reality on the ground here. And I've in the embassy and I'm looking out and I'm like, oh, I don't know, this is a bad public policy thing. And let me go. And so you can go and you can say, hey, you know, huh, like maybe you want to shift it. But that doesn't always work. 
Um, and so to, to be an ambassador is to do the will of the one who has sent them. Right? The skill of the ambassador is not to come up with new policies, new values, new, new um, core um, sort of uh, policy goals. The goal of the ambassador is to take all of those policy goals they have been handed and to give them to the other people from the other nation. So when Paul says that we are ambassadors of this reconciling God, um, we're kind of stuck, especially if we've got mad or we're angry, we have beef with other people in our orbit. Um, because the core message that we have been given is that Jesus died and rose again. He's coming back to fix and judge the world. And there's forgiveness of sins for any repents, anybody who repents of their wrongs. That's our message. And so we don't get to say anything else, right? We're just bad ambassadors if we do. That is how we are mouthpieces. That is the thing to communicate. And so um, I encourage you, friends, to really dive deep into this particular comment on your Christian vocation, right? Preach the gospel of a reconciling God um, for those, to those who have yet to believe. It's the second thing. Third thing we'll take away today is that if I just give you those two imperatives, right? Um, go reconcile with people in your life and also preach the reconciling gospel. If, if that's all I give you today, I've, I've not really, I'm, I've done you a disservice because the reality is, is if I could just tell you to do those things and then you'd go do them, um, well, uh, things would be a lot easier, but that's just not the case. Um, the only, this is only possible. The only reason you get to be an ambassador, the only reason that you can be reconciled with your neighbors and friends is because God did it first. God did it first. And so if you're dying to come to terms with your adult children because you still haven't seen your grandkids in a year and a half since the pandemic started, right? the answer is not to change them. The answer is for you to get back into your relationship with God and do some work there and see what happens. Right? If you've got a hothead friend that you are having a different political fight with on a regular basis, um, you're going to need to make sure that you are reconciled with God so that you can do that reconciliation work with your hot-headed friend. Right? You may have heard of the psychologist's a warning um, that wounded people wound people. That's a saying in psychology which encourages people to deal with their past and deal with the, the things that have hurt them in the past um, so that they don't go around hurting other people, deal with their emotional scars. Well, I tell you this morning, friends, that reconciled people can reconcile people. That it's people who have been reconciled with their Heavenly Father who can be the ambassadors. And so if that's what you want to do, um, the trick is not to be looking outward, but upward, and to reconnect with the God who loves you. Right? That's the reason why Christians are the only ones preaching peace these days. The only reason, that's why Christians are the only ones talking about reconciliation. The core of our God's heart is reconciliation. Nobody else engages enemies from a heart of benevolence like God does. When the rest of the world's insurgents um, right, are, um, are looking to sort of fight this big fight, right? when the rest of the world's insurgents engage in their rebellions, what happens? They're jailed. Their livelihoods are destroyed. They're interrogated. They are tried. They are locked up in the keys thrown away. Not so with those who rebel against the kingdom of heaven. They are brought home, they are thrown a feast. They are embraced and brought to a reconciling love with their Heavenly Father. And so, friends, I beseech you on behalf of our higher power, be reconciling ambassadors to God as God has made you to be. Go in peace and practice in speech and in works, this work of reconciliation. Be reconciled to the saving God of heaven. Be someone who reconciles with your enemies 
and be the vessel that God uses to save and create new ambassadors. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, Pennsylvania.